0: Hey everyone, on this week's episode of the First Act Podcast, Harry sits down with career whisperer and linked influencer Jonathan Tesser. Jonathan helps students and young professionals find their niche in the corporate world and whatever industry is right for them. He and Harry give advice on how to find your own personal path to a career and give some insights you don't want to miss, all on this week's episode of the First Act Podcast.
1: And now, hosted by Harry G., This is your one-stop shop for hot talk straight from the top. Whether you're trying to build a job in pop, rock, or any other artsy schlock, here's your top dog. With info that can't be bought, it's got to be sought. So sit back, crack a six-pack, because we're about to chit-chat and rip facts. It's the First Act Podcast.
0: Jonathan Tesser, thank you so much for being on the First Act Podcast. Thanks for having me, Harrison. All right, so... (laughs) I did not plan anything for our conversation, so I'm just going to kind of give a little bit of background on you. So you are somewhere in the intersection of analytics, New York City, television, media, and you're a LinkedIn influencer, a LinkedIn influencer.
1: Yeah, the way I like to describe myself, I kind of have three different personas, if you will. One is my my professional persona, which is an analytics guy who primarily worked in the entertainment and media industry. Uh, A lot of the biggest names you've heard of, Viacom, BET, Viacom, um, New York Magazine, and I started my analytics career at ABC Television. So mostly doing audience development kind of work. So learning about who people are. Um, and getting them to read content primarily on websites. And so that's my professional way of describing who I am. But I also have a couple of other sides. Yes, I'm definitely a New Yorker. So we got to add that. And then the third is this person who helps people find their career happiness through linking who they are to the right career for them. And I do something called career whispering sessions. So I do have a side thing. And yeah, I am a LinkedIn, God, the word influencer, I'll use it because there's not a better word, but I have a very large audience on LinkedIn that reads my content I'll put it that way. And I write text posts and people respond to them. And I have this whole community of people who are really crazy about it. And I got lots of people saying really nice things about me. And I'm like, I don't deserve that. But cool. Thank you. And yeah, that's that's uh, that's a little intro to to who I am. Because I wanted to kind of get into
0: this. Like you're also a career whisperer for young professionals. And I just want to be like, what the fuck is that?
1: (laughs) You know, like you want to get right into that?
0: Yeah, let's tackle that and then we're going to go through your your story and like your profession, you know, kind of how you rebranded yourself, how you worked at a how you worked at Heineken, how you got into yeah, yeah. analytics. Yeah, all that sort of stuff. Cool. Where
1: do you want to start, man?
0: Okay, so <laughs> tell me tell me where you came up with the term career whisperer and why you are qualified of all people to be this whisperer.
1: I have no idea how I came up with the term. I'm shocked that I did cuz I'm terrible at self-branding. I, I literally, out of every single influencer out there, I would rank myself in the bottom 2% in terms of actually being able to self-promote myself in the right way. Um, so Career whisper was a bit surprising uh, that I came up for it. What is a Career whisper? A Career whisper is somebody who tells people what is the right career for them, particularly young professionals? Because let's be real honest, these kids coming out of school, right, about 22, or if they're 25, they come out of grad school, they've been told to do certain things by society, by their parents, by professors, by career advisors, but they never really thought about it for themselves in the right way. And what I mean by thinking about it for themselves in the right way is they don't really bring what I call self-awareness into the process right? They're never like, oh, well, I like to do these things and I'm really good at this and this is what I do for fun. And they don't think about this stuff before they go into the career. So they just blindly follow the money and you know follow what everybody else is doing and get the, what I call approval juice from society to say, oh, look, I'm an investment banker or I'm a data analyst. And it's like, oh, you're important. Cool. But they never really took the time to figure out if that's the right thing for them to do. So I offer, and I've perfected it over the years, a couple of sessions, I don't want to, it's like, you know, I call it career therapy almost, Uh, therapy sessions where you go into self-awareness about who you are. And at the end of it, I spit out the right career for you. And, uh, you know, not here to advertise my services, but I have very good success rate. Your question was, how am I qualified to do this? I'm not, but I'm really good at it. I don't know how that happened or why, maybe because I have good active listening skills and can tell people what they are meaning to say back to them. Other than that, I worked in corporate for 20 years, so there's not a function I don't know about it. And by corporate, I mean, I have worked on, you know, like I said, the big fortune 100 company side. I've also worked on the little company side doing tech startups. And I've worked on the agency side at advertising agencies. So I understand literally every single corporate function and every single type of environment. So if you want a corporate job, I know what they all are. (laughs) <laughs> Which is how I can point people and, and say, and
0: that sounds right. More importantly, you understand like the, the intertwinings of the different departments and where somebody might end up, you know, based on their interests, end up fitting into that equation. Like, let's say they're interested in TV, but, you know, they are not good at acting or they are not good at screenwriting or they're not good behind the camera, whatever it is, but they might be great at strategy, or branding right.
1: or corporate partnerships. Yes, that's exactly right. And a lot of those conversations I have, people are like, yeah, I do want to work in entertainment. And I'm like, oh, I'm, let me guess. You want to work in PR and events? And they're like, yeah, how'd you know? I'm like, mm, okay. <laughs> Cause that's what you think the, that's what you think the industry is. It's creative PR and events. So who, who's uh, fault there's, who, whose fault who, is this?
0: The kids are not, are not educated.
1: I mean, I, I, I've been very, very vocal about being down on career centers for not understanding these corporate functions, how these things work. I don't think they know about these functions at all. And, you know, what they do is they bring, you know, they do a really good job of bringing people onto campus who work in these functions so those people can tell. But the the career professionals themselves at the universities don't know these functions well. A lot of them just work in academic career services. And to be quite honest, they don't care, meaning that that's not how they're compensated. They're not compensated on career happiness for their students. They are compensated on how many students did we place post-graduation and how much money did they earn? so the incentives aren't necessarily aligned with what gets students to where they want to go. They're aligned with what makes the university look the best. Right.
0: Right. Versus what actually will benefit the people that are going there. Because like, for instance, like I went to, I went to McGill university and you know, very prestigious school, you know, they That's like right. to say it's the Harvard of Canada. Yeah, but, but we all know that if, if something is the something of something, it's usually the nothing of nothing. <laughs> no, just, just knockingly, like, it is a great school. And, you know, I think that the most value from going there was not actually anything that I learned. It was It attracted talent in terms of professors, even though 80% of them were terrible and spoke English as like a fifth language. But what was most valuable was the network, the people mm-hmm. that I got to schmooze with at mm-hmm. you know the the four to sevens or the five to sevens or the drinking all the time or or you know orientation or what, whatever it was case class and you know these different these different sorts of um, social events were most valuable in my undergrad and I think that's mm-hmm. really where I got the value. Whereas what teachers really taught me, like some of it was applicable, but most of it really wasn't relevant. And they only talk about big fortune 500 companies. They don't talk about startup mentality. They don't talk about different ecosystems that are more emerging. And even now I'm doing my masters in software engineering. And a lot of the content that we're learning is so outdated Mm -hmm. and it's not even like the projects aren't even relevant to what would be going on in real life. And you ask Mm -hmm. the teachers and they have no idea
1: yeah, I mean it's look I, I would be out of a job right if everybody did this self-awareness and all of the universities had the ability to do what the whispering right and they were all able to sit down with the students, offer them the two sessions and be like okay, now you know yourself, we can help you with your resume blah 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 then I'd be like, oh great I don't, I have no demand for what I do because your universities are offering this. Right. Well, I've got tons of people that about to graduate from university who are like, John, help me. I don't know what I want to do. I'm a little scared. And I'm like, oh, it's because you're not getting what you need from your university. Like, this is just such a taboo topic for me to even mention what I'm saying here, Harrison, is like, oh, don't, he can't say these things, but money talks, right? If I, what I was saying wasn't true, why are clients finding me even though I don't advertise
0: I might hire you as my career whisperer in a couple weeks I mean you know you could you could psychoanalyze me and see what's going to go on yeah man. so your background is actually in psychology and music that's right right and then so so you studied that at Tufts and you know what did you what kind of value did you gain from your undergrad
1: I actually wasn't gonna argue with you right on the spot, but my background in psychology and, and going to Tufts was quite valuable in terms of providing me a framework with how to think about things. Tufts had a very, very good psychology department with a lot of very good professors, some not so good, but the ones that I had that were good taught me a mode of thinking. And what I mean by that is, You know, experimental psychology is the course that I remember, which teaches you don't take anything at face value, go experiment and figure it out. And we're going to teach you the methodology how to do that, both through this experimental psychology course, through statistics, and through a specialized course, because I was a social psychology specific major, which was really awesome. I took a social psychology lab where you had to go make an experiment and work with a lab partner to, to, you know, to do it. And it steeped me that that training steeped me and set me up for the career that I had, which was to have this experimental way of thinking. Let's find out how do we know if that's true. Let's go use statistics and numbers to see if our hypothesis is correct. To test it. Yeah. And so I think that I was given really amazing tools through my undergrad training to be able to do that. I don't know if it's just that universities have changed and they're just not as relevant or applicable now, but I did find it completely relevant and applicable when I was an undergrad. I think
0: that the approach that you took to university is very smart, Uh, at least for somebody like me. I think that like you, you know, people have sought me out as well to like kind of coach them on their careers or do like um, mock interviews to help them prepare to work at a talent agency and that sort of stuff. And I like doing it because I find there's a huge psychological component to it, which is really oh, yeah. what interests me. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting that you that you bring that up. Psychology seems to be a very valuable major to study in, but you also studied in music. And so how did that? Did, did was there any overlap in that domain or was it zero just-
1: overlap the the story i like to tell about how is music relevant to my career now and if you're a musician you'll understand this inherently the ability to recognize numeric patterns through the study of music theory was probably the most imp- one of the most important career developments for me to become a great analyst I had the most incredible music theory professor (laughs) of all time and very difficult, but I loved her classes and I learned a lot. And that ability to take the individual notes, right? That's what I talk about with music theory. Take the individual notes that you see and form a holistic structure and strategic structure from those notes, right? Whether you're talking about the chord progressions, or you're talking about, you know, sonata form. You're talking about taking little bits of information and turning them into the whole. What do you do as an analyst? Exactly that. that you take yeah. little bits of information. You analyze them with your with your. I eyeball everything, Harrison. Everybody's talking about Python's so coding, coding. I eyeball the data. That's how I learn. I eyeball it. I look at it like it's, a, it's an artistic canvas. When I look at data and I do a data analysis and I eyeball it and I say, "How does what is the story? What is the structure? What is the sonata form of this data? And that's how I form the analysis that I create. I was trained as a musician to be able to do that. And it gave me, again, that frame of reference. So you combine the psychology, which is relevant to the study of people and the experimental approach and the understanding of statistics and and structured ways of thinking, and you combine that with music theory, where where you're taking individual notes and and you're matching them up and you're making something strategic, and boom, you've created a great analyst. Now, who, who would have thought of that? that way right not a single person i know but did you think about that when you were applying (laughs) i did not so it was it was luck that you it was complete luck
0: yeah and so now now that you're on the other side of it and you've you know you've had a successful career as an analyst and in a bunch of different industries you know how can it without going to tufts and doing a four-year bachelor's degree and taking classes in statistics and psychology and math like how can somebody like me or like whoever's listening to this podcast, how can they emulate that in their own way and learn how to be a good analyst?
1: It's a great question. First thing I would say is find volunteer opportunities to do data analysis. You have to be hands-on. So if you find local nonprofits in your area, ask them if they have Google Analytics and, and reach out and be like, hey, anybody analyzing your website data? And go do it. Set up the Google Analytics set up the technical form and then match it to the strategic. Mm-hmm. Because here's the thing, to be a good analyst, you have to be technical, not because you need to code. That's, that's, that's the problem with the way people think of technical, right? Technical doesn't mean you need to code. Technical means you need to understand how the data is collected, what is the methodology behind it, and, and, and how, what's the mechanism that it's collected and, and interpreted, right? Right. That's a necessity for an analyst. If you don't do that, you can't be an analyst. So doing Google Analytics, right, you got a little snippet of code, you now have to understand how does that work. Then the other part of being an analyst is what is the business problem? Okay, so what's this nonprofit trying to do? Right? What is or I'm going to make my own website, what am I trying to do? Or just get people to read. You have to ask the big strategic questions to understand what it a is that level. you want at a high level Yeah, in order to provide the data that answers those questions. You cannot do this at school because no one is teaching you that this is the way you become an analyst. They're just going to say code in Python, learn statistics, do some machine learning, right? That's what school teaches you, but they don't teach you how to be an analyst, Right, and So you made a very controversial post about this, Harrison. And I said, if you go to school for data analytics, I probably won't wanna hire you. I saw that post, which is funny because I
0: completely pivoted my career. And because I'm good at sales and I'm personable and I am analytics minded, like even to this day, I tutor statistics and I tutor high-level math because I find it fascinating. And I love working with numbers. But I worked in the music industry, in artist management, artist development, and as a talent agent and all these things. And then I realized I don't wanna do that. And what did I do next? I learned Python, I learned SQL. I learned a little bit of R. I took my statistics background. I started reading textbooks. I started posting online, trying to talk to other people that were data scientists with those air quotes. And then I ended up landing a job in in telecom and media, doing just that as an analyst, it's like the higher, the, the big corporate companies. All they really wanted was somebody who had Python and SQL and and all of, and all of these, but they didn't actually care necessarily, or it seemed like they didn't really care about if somebody was actually able to provide analytics that reflected strategy or or that was able to help strategy in the company. So mm-hmm. it's it's funny that you say that, and you know, my question to you is. Do you know how to code?
1: No, I don't know how to write a single thing of code. But do you need to know how to code to do your job? I'm an analytics leader. I have this debate all the time. Um, And I stand firmly by the fact that if I learn to code, that means you're gonna expect me to code. And you can find an 18 year old right out of high school who can code better than me. Why are you hiring me? And my 20 years of experience of running analytics teams and pushing analytics agendas and understanding company strategy and linking that to analytics. What do you need me for if you want me to code? Mm -hmm. It doesn't make sense. If you expect me to understand Python and SQL, why? Why do I need to understand it? I can have other people who are literally experts, technical experts who spend all their time learning Python. They're software developers. Like my team right now, Harrison, I have a team at NYC & Company. One volunteer who's a software engineer, major software engineer, graduate student at Rochester Institute of Technology. He is way beyond Python that anything you and I will ever be in our lives. Why do I need to understand what he's doing? All I need to do is explain to him, give him the recipe, and let him make the Python script. I don't need to understand how he does it. I just need at the end of the day for him to do it. The only thing I
0: agree with you, 98%, the only 2% thing that I would disagree is, and, and I'm not saying that you need to know how to code for this, is just if you are holding a managerial position in a technical company where they are building technology or they have a SaaS or something like that, I think that you need to know a little bit about coding so that you don't get taken advantage of by your team. So you could be an effective leader so that you will know approximately how long something should take. So you can do budget, you, you know, you could budget how long a project might take to build.
1: Understood. Even if I understood coding, I wouldn't be able to know if they're hoodwicking me or not. Do you okay. know what I'm saying?
0: Yeah. So, so that's that's why I'm doing my master's at night, you know, because I want to be able to, I'd like to be able to lead technical teams in a similar capacity that you do. And I know that I'm not going to be world's best coder, so I'm learning enough that I'm able to communicate. I could maybe kind of hack together my own projects, but ultimately just really lead a team. Because I think that for somebody of my skill set and somebody of your skill set, who is able to c- clearly communicate, you know, the, kind of the bridge between the data and the strategy and the overall picture of the company, it, that there's a lot more value there. At least
1: th- that I can provide. Yeah, and it's why, to your point, every single, if I look up a VP of analytics job these days, they say, expert knowledge required in SQL and Python, and expert knowledge of leading teams, data analytics teams, and I'm sitting here like, impossible, <laughs> does not exist you can get someone very technical, who's very good at the Python, but do they know how to do the strategy and the storytelling and the leading of the teams and the soft skills necessary to move and the understanding of the strategy and the business the same way that I do? I've never seen it
0: mm-hmm. in
1: my life. I've never seen someone who can do the coding, the backend engineering to make sure the data is in the right format, represented in the right way. And like you said earlier in our chat, the schmoozing, and the politicking, and the soft skills, and the selling, does not happen.
0: Right, and, and so and
1: if that person does
0: exist, then if you're having them code, it's inefficient. It's a waste of your men, it's a waste of your money. It's a
1: waste of your time. So the problem we have now is we have we have coding mania, and, and what's happened in the data industry is, you know, when I started, it was a ragtag group of just a bunch of weirdos, right? Mostly in social sciences. This was back in 2007. It's not even that long ago. Just a bunch of weirdos who mostly worked as statisticians or social scientists or something. They started doing this web analytics stuff, right? And there was very, little, no one even knew anything about numbers. No one had a numbers background. And then all of a sudden, they, they you know, more data was getting collected and they started to realize, you know, Oh, this, this stuff's real, real valuable. And, and the coders came in. And that was to me, the end of the data industry as it, as it you know, should be, right? Because as soon as you hand it over to the technical people, what happens? The technical stuff becomes the most important. They've won the fight. That's the sad thing. The technical people have won because if you see data analytics conversations that happen or data science conversations that happen over the web, It is all about how do I accomplish this thing in Python? How do I make this machine learning algorithm, whatever it is, but who's talking about how, do I understand how my business works? Do I know what are the performance indicators that are really gonna drive this? Do I know where are those conversations happening? They're not happening in the data community,
0: I know that you and I can kind of go down this vein because you and I are both data and technical people who who can can talk about this shit all day. But I want to kind of get back to you and shine the light on your career. So after you graduated, what was your first job? How did you get
1: your first job and what was it? (laughs) Um, My first job, how did I get it? This is a great question. So I graduated in 2001, which is famous in New York City for Towers Falling. So, September 11th, 2001. uh, That was right when I, and I was living in New York City at the time. So, uh, I couldn't get a job coming out of school. It was not possible. It's like, fine. You know, there wasn't the same job mania you have these days, right? It's like, okay, well, it's fine. I don't have a job. I didn't feel bad about it. (laughs) It's like no one cared. Sorry, it makes me sound privileged. Everybody hates it when I say this story, but it's true. I was living at home. I was about to say, were you
0: living at home with mom and dad? Yeah.
1: Yeah, I was living at home with mom and dad, but, which yeah. it was not ideal, right? But, you know, hey, it is what it is. What it is? They live in New York. I, I was living with them. And so how did I get my first job? Well, uh, I had a friend who introduced me to a friend, and I talked to her, and she's like, oh, yeah, go interview for this. I'm like, okay. That's how he got a job. So, so she, was it? it was a spot broadcast buyer at a media agency that's the lowest rung of a media agency for anybody who knows anything about media is spot broadcast buyer so that means, that means that yes so that means that we bought individual spots for local television and radio for institutional clients like McDonald's and you know Kraft and Procter and Gamble this was for a large company called MediaVest and so just not a great fit because like it's just a bunch of loud people negotiating over, you know, <laughs> whatever it is.
0: And, and, uh, you know, you know help, help me out here because you were you were probably like what? Early 20s, 22, 23. 22, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and you get put in a room and you're obviously a guy with a lot of opinions. And I can only imagine that you were always a guy with a lot of opinions. Maybe mm-hmm. even more of them now. But how was it? being in a junior role where you were like, well, this isn't really for me. Like, did you, was there a lot of friction?
1: There's always a lot of friction. Uh, yeah. Cause I don't shut up. I mean, I've learned over time to keep my mouth shut, but only out of necessity. <laughs> now you just type it on the internet. Now I just type it on the internet and I've got hundreds of thousands of people who are like, Oh, we can't believe he said that. Good for him. <laughs> They're all encouraging my loud mouthness, which is great. So, okay, um, so, so how did you leave media vest? so then I transferred while I was at media vest to something that was much more relevant, which was media planning. And that's where I worked at Heineken. And that was really How are those different, totally different. So media planning plans, all of the media spend. So you're given a budget and you're saying we're going to spend this much on radio, this much on TV, right. This much in magazine. And it was really fun. It was for Heineken. So we like, at the time magazine buying was a really big deal. So we got to like, I don't know, I got to go see Coldplay in concert and all these great dinners and Sports Illustrated swimsuit parties. and It was awesome. I was 22, so you can imagine. Real cool. I transferred to that because it was like the really strategic kind of brainy thing at an agency. Yeah. Uh, and then I got a call from, from an old boss uh, who's now my current boss. It's such a crazy world we live in. So I had done an internship when I was 19. And then she called up and she says, hey, do you want to come work for me? I'm at the city tourism board. And this was, I was 23 at the time. I was like, cool, that sounds good. And so I went over there and I worked there for for three years before I got my MBA. What prompted you getting your MBA? Uh, I was bored and I didn't know what to do. (laughs) So I was like, okay, I'm kind of feel stuck in this job and let me go like learn some other things and, uh, you know, let's get into marketing. I really, really liked marketing. I wanted to be a product manager coming out of my MBA. And so did you find the MBA was
0: valuable? God,
1: a lot of people ask me that question. Not really. It was valuable for the network that I created with people who were good at things that I was not. Okay. So I got to learn from like finance and accounting people and I got to, you know, it was valuable from, Hey, it's really cool to learn about like corporate strategy. I think what I got the most out of my MBA was I got real comfortable presenting and being in a public sphere and, and, and you know having to network and talk with people, you're really introduced to that world of work, right? And I think that was helpful. But again, how did I get my job out of my MBA? Oh, look, my you know, dad's patient <laughs> worked at ABC, and she's like, I need a web analyst. I'm like, okay, right? It's like, did I need the MBA for that? Mm, prob- maybe, maybe to get my foot in the door for a web analyst position at the time and, and use my MBA skills, sure. But, you know, I was not, it wasn't like the greatest career center that were going to get me like a job at at a top company. Did it allow you to command a higher pay? Oh, yeah. I mean, I made a lot more money. (laughs) I don't know if I made more money because I was an MBA or that's just how much they were paying. And then I moved to, after that, it was New York Magazine and I just kept doing the web analytics and I got to be an expert in that field and, you know, just just moved from there. Lots of networking, lots of different opportunities. Had you ever been fired before from a job? Have I been fired? Yeah. Oh, I mean, that's like a whole nother podcast, Harrison. Um, (laughs) And I did actually have a podcast uh, about my layoff experiences. But yeah, I've been fired three times in my career, twice from like more startup-y types of places. And then Viacom fired me. Viacom is famous for firing people. So they just hire and fire. That's what they do. So anyone listening out there who's been fired before, you can still
0: be successful if you've been fired.
1: Oh, ouch, Harrison. Of course you can everybody should be fired at least once, because if you're not fired, you actually tend to think that you are invincible. And it's a great experience to not think you're invincible. All right. So
0: you eventually ended up at MediaMind where you got your dream job of being a product manager.
1: Yeah, it was my dream job. And I've been doing a variety of that kind of work ever since. So I was a product marketing manager, which meant that I was evangelizing data products for an ad serving company based out of Israel. Um, So my job, it was really an incredible role and I was only there for 10 months, but I really, really loved the work. My role was to understand what the customer wanted and to make sure that the product team was making it. And then to make sure that we had the correct marketing with the right strategic message going out into the marketplace to make sure that, you know, we're selling this the right way, Mm -hmm. right? So it was everything that I think is fun. I got to sell. I got to really understand consumer psychology. I got to do focus group work. Um, I got to work with analytics products and understand how they were made. Uh, It was 10 months long, but it could have been five years in terms of how much I learned. So why why did you leave there? Oh, (laughs) fired.
0: I don't mean to laugh. It's just so blunt. All right, um but but for what? It was just cuz they were a startup company, there was a restructuring or
1: restructuring startup company, they got they basically got rid of their whole old product team. And mm. We're like this is not how we want to do it and I guess I wasn't considered to be a top performer, which would make sense cuz I had only worked in product marketing for 10 months. So, yeah. you know, not terribly But I I love product marketing. I love product marketing for data teams. So I've done a variety of that kind of work at most companies. Even now, when I'm at NYC and company, we're making data products. And I'm basically selling in and evangelizing the products that we're making, uh, even at the tourism board. I'm looking at, you know, your resume. And I noticed, so you got laid off at the
0: end of November, or I guess in November. And then you had a little bit of time off before your next job, like just like two months. So what do you do in between jobs when you get fired? Like, do you immediately start looking for another job or like, how do you set yourself up better to, you know not take that blow to your ego so terribly and get another job and maybe a job that you want that maybe would be a better fit for you. Like, how how do you, how do you end up finding that?
1: I mean, there's a better question to ask which is after you've been fired three times do you still want to work in corporate America? (laughs) All right, and uh, what I had basically decided after my last uh, time getting fired was I got to go run my own thing, and so I really enjoyed the hustle of being an entrepreneur, and I was getting all of these you know analytics gigs, and it was actually quite a bit of fun. Uh, But the money was always going to be too tough to get, and I have a family, and you know I'm the quote unquote breadwinner. So making a steady income was more important than me running a business, which is why right now I'm at NYC and company, which which is a really amazing job doing really amazing work. Um, And I lucked into that, but it's not a corporate setting. It's a nonprofit. So it fits with my lifestyle and what I love to do. And I have an amazing boss and I get to do great stuff. To be honest, I didn't think I would find a job like that where I would be valued for what I have to do, but it wouldn't, you know, have the scepter of being fired all the time over my head.
0: <laughs> right. Is there anything else that you'd like to share for anybody who's listening in terms of career, how they can get started, um, or some challenges that they might face and how they might be able to overcome them?
1: Yeah, I think that it's really important what what, what you were saying, Harrison, in terms of entry-level data jobs. Um, At this point, you will be a doer and a creator when you get into the field. You will not be like me running a team. And so you've got to build up the technical skills. It may sound like I'm, you know, an oxymoron here where I'm saying I don't need them, but you do. But it's true. I don't need them. And you do because I don't need to make the stuff. It's not the best use of my time. You will have to make this stuff. So even if you're a social scientist, start doing, you know, projects with Python, with SQL, um, you know, with the programming languages, so that you can show those projects and show that you know how to do that coding and that you know ETL, right? The exchange transfer load stuff, it's because that's what you're going to be hired for. And that's what you know. Employees are going to want from you, so you have to be able to pass
0: that. I have a question. I'm sorry to interrupt, but so on that topic, how can somebody who might not have studied computer science or, you know, analytics per se, get, you know, refine and build that skill set? Especially like I, I know that you could do like personal projects, and maybe you could like build a website and track your own metrics. That would be one way. You know, you can get you could. Build your own project. But how can how can somebody get more exposure to large data sets when they're working on personal projects?
1: US census data. It's what I always say. Okay. okay. And people ask me that question all the time. How can I do a project? I just say census and answer some questions that you think you might be interested in using population data, whatever it is, because there's a ton of data. It's a big data set. You have to manipulate that data set using Python to get it into a usable format. And then you have to analyze it and you have to put it into PowerPoint. Go do your own, you know, analysis of something in the US census and answer a question. It's there for you, it's free, and there's a ton of data. It's the best data source and it's interesting, right? Go find something, make your own project. You have to be entrepreneurial if you want to get into data because everybody wants to get into data. And you got to have something that separates you. And trust me, as a hiring manager, for as many years as I've been a hiring manager, the only thing I care about, I don't care what university you went to, I want you to show me the projects because it shows me everything I need to know about you. If you don't have the projects, what am I supposed to say? I don't know. I don't know what you do. I don't know who you are. I don't know. Right? Right. You got, you got to build that project portfolio. And I've said it a hundred times on LinkedIn. So, and everybody's like, how do I do it? And I just said, there's a hundred ways to do it. You just got to go do it. You can't procrastinate on it. If you're serious about it, do it.
0: You got to be creative, come up with your own freaking question that you want to answer and then build it. And like you were saying, census data and then follow a Python tutorial on Coursera or Udemy YouTube on how to, that's what I did, (laughs) how to build a, fucking dashboard and then put in the pie chart put in the bar graph that you're using scikit-learn or that's right right or numpy or wh- whatever and it and the and the coding will come
1: that's right and, and you it, learn as you do it and you start to build the confidence that you can say yeah yeah I did it it was not a problem it was easy if you don't like the coding stuff it's going to be very hard to get into data because it data sources are so big right now um that they do require a lot of this transforming into a usable format, and I see it in even in tourism where I work, I see it
0: yeah it's it's cl- cleaning the data, and that's usually what your first job will be in a data that's correct
1: role that's exactly right.
0: John, thanks so much. I just yeah you know, do you have any closing thoughts, comments, concerns, insults before we uh <laughs>
1: No, I think there is enough comments,
0: concerns, thoughts, and insults (laughs) in our conversation today, Harrison. Thanks so much
1: for your time. Yeah, this was fun. Thanks for having me, man.
0: Hey, everyone. Just wanted to check back in and shout all of you out who are taking the time to check out the podcast, especially those of you who have been sharing it with your friends and writing me such nice messages on Apple Podcasts, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. If you or someone you know has an awesome story that you think should be shared with the world, feel free to write me directly on any of our socials at the First Act Podcast. Until then, stay safe.